loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Rosalie Bluston. Rosalie is the award-winning author of Dying in Dubai, a memoir of marriage, mourning, and the Middle East, which was a 2016 Forward Indies Book of the Year winner and a 2017 Eric Hoffer Book Award finalist. She and I talked about that book in 2016. Her second book, her de- the, the debut novel, Trial by Family, was published by Apprentice House Press, Loyola, Loyola University, MD, on October 1st, this year, 2019. Her plays have been produced in New York, across the country, at the Edinburgh Festival, and over Voice of America, and her short stories, essays, and articles have been published in national magazines, journals, and anthologies. She lives and teaches writing in New York's Hudson Valley. Welcome, Rosalie. Thank you, Cheryl. It's wonderful to hear your voice again and to be able to speak with you. too. So good to have you back in it, and for uh, a really different uh, kind of book, which of course uh, intrigues me a lot because uh, I last year I put out a novel, which wasn't something I ever expected to write, uh, and and I I just appreciate being exposed to things through that form, through fiction, because uh, the characters help, you know, help to to really uh, help us absorb certain ideas. So uh, I appreciated getting a chance to read a book that is a novel instead of, of course, I read a lot of nonfiction for the show. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Fiction offers a deeper truth sometimes than, than you can play as a fiction writer in a way you can't play with things in memoir. Uh, Yes. Use your imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I found it very satisfying to write fiction in that way. Um, You know, inventing people is quite a incredible experience in a way. But I'm aware that you started the book or wrote a lot of it before your husband died, which is interesting because uh, the book does contain, you know, themes of loss and grief, but not inspired by by your your loss and so i wondered what did inspire you to write this type of book to write this particular book what brought you to this story well trial by family uh i began it in 2005 and it in although it's fiction it was indeed based on an incident that happened in my family of origin so i knew that i wanted to write about what happened to my siblings and I um, in the wake of this inheritance battle that we went through. Um, But I knew that I was going to fictionalize it. I was going to make people up. I was going to take the story and directions that life didn't go. This book doesn't end the way the life story did. Um, so, but really it, it, you know, it's kind of haunted also by the loss of both my parents. So, 
it really goes back to the family that I came from. And in 2009, after Gary died in 2008, my husband, and after his death, I did keep working on this novel. But, of course, the writing about the widow experience kind of took over. And I put the novel aside, and then, of course, I went on that whole journey with Dying in Dubai. And by 2018, fast forward, I'm done with my book tour with Dying in Dubai, and my publisher wanted another book. And I thought, gee, you know, I have this manuscript, and it's, almost, it's just about done, and maybe I should look at it again. And I reread Trial by Family, and I thought, yeah, I can, I'm going to tighten it up. And I submitted it, and they accepted it, and here we are. So. Uh. What a story. What a what an experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of uh, I had a similar the my novel got put in the drawer because I started the radio show. And it ah. sat there for several years. So maybe that's a thing. Right. <laughs> I don't know. But it is right. interesting since of course when you were here before we talked exclusively really about uh your your husband's death and what that brought in your life and your time in Dubai trying to settle settle his affairs and you know all of that we didn't touch on this at all but it's in, it's interesting to me that you'd had a previous uh you know I do think we respond to death differently over time because we've had experiences of it and I wonder if you think anything about losing your parents and going through that informed how you grieved your husband? It, I, I do think it, it must have, but it was very different because um, my mother died of cancer and we knew she was dying. And on some level, although you're never really prepared, we as a family were more prepared than we were when my dad died. And it was on top of this insane inheritance thing going on with his second wife. Mm. And I felt like what happened there uh, was that the grief for my dad got delayed, uh. really delayed, and maybe delayed by a year or two before I could really feel everything because we were in this other crisis. And that part of working out all of that grief was writing this novel in fact, because the legacy of the father and understanding, you know, how to honor those who've passed is part of the novel. But my husband's death, um, I'm not sure uh, that it's such a different thing to lose a spouse, at least it was for me, Absolutely. than to lose parents. You know, Absolutely. you do kind of think you're going to outlive your parents, at least intellectually, mm -hmm. you would kind of accept that. Right. But I... Absolutely. My husband was 53. He was actually a couple years younger than I was. It was an aneurysm. It was out of the blue. He was considered healthy up to that point. And I, it was so out of the realm of the order of things that I, I took it much harder. <laughs> Not uh -huh. that I didn't mourn my parents, but I took it much harder because it seemed so out of sync. Yeah. And interestingly, I would I would say what is uh, resonates a little between the two is having to do a very complicated uh, legal maneuver or mm -hmm. whatever word we want to use right after losing someone so yeah. important 
that's what yeah. seems a bit similar yeah. to me. Yeah, that, uh, that is absolutely a parallel. Um, I think the difference was with my husband, I was so deeply grieving while I was trying to do legal stuff in Dubai that I, I couldn't avoid my, there was no way to even to quash my grief or there was just no way around it. Whereas with my dad, um, I, I don't know. I, I seem to be able to sort of put it on a shelf. It kind of um, went in the box and until was, you, in, until in box, you had more right. space. And, and that huh? was the difference. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Um, so, um, one thing that stands out a lot in the book, which of course, uh, in less dramatic ways is always true, is that um, the siblings in the book are grieving quite profoundly differently. Uh, the effects on them of loss are so very different that it seems even hard for them to continue to relate to each other. And that's familiar. I've, I've heard those kinds of stories before, for sure. Was that... Yeah, uh, did, go ahead. Oh, yes. I mean, the, there are three children. Alvin Siegel is the patriarch, and the uh, oldest is Lorraine, the middle child is Kenneth, and the youngest is Alyssa. And they're all in their 40s, so you would think they would be all grown up. But, of course... Um, that's not entirely true. Everyone gets arrested in some way. And part of being arrested is that they don't know how to deal with each other. They don't know, they don't understand their relationship to their parents clearly or to the world. And so they, they sort of earn their genuine adulthood through facing this public jury trial that they have to go through. But the sisters, the girls, um, have a lot of trouble with each other and seem to have had a longstanding trouble um, that predates this particular crisis, um, and their relationships with their long, their dead mother are different. Their relationships even with the father are different, and they have a hard time, but they, everybody has to come together on some level to deal with this very public battle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hear from people who've read the book that, you know, this is, this is a truism, and it's a universal that um, oftentimes these kinds of crises bring out all the stuff, even stuff yeah. that's not directly about the issue. One, one thing that I noticed just as a grief counselor is that it seems to go very much in one direction or the other. Either people kind of bond together and get uh, tighter with each other. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's happened in my wife's family. There are eight, eight well, one of them has died. There are seven of them, and their mother's death has just cemented them. Uh, and then uh, contrasting, like your characters, the fracture and separation and hurt and uh, real difficulty that comes in, in grief. Maybe we can get yeah. to know one of them a little. Maybe you could read... Um, the description of, of Alyssa, and we'll know a little more about what she brings to the equation. Yes, this is the youngest, and this is the first we, we meet of her. In the parking lot of the Bethesda Nima Marcus, Alyssa leaned against her car and stared at the imposing white building. Tomorrow was Mother's Day, a fact that tricked her into a shopping spree in Mother's honor. 
But looking up at the marble exterior of a building so familiar it could have been her second home, Alyssa was losing her nerve. The structure loomed like a landmark backdrop in one of the live shots she regularly produced. The monuments transmitted an impersonal grandeur, asking nothing of her. This structure taunted. Go in. What's the big deal? She had done it a million times. It was a Saturday, four years to the day since Mother's death. In all that time, Alyssa had not set foot inside the store. Up until Mother's illness, their Saturday ritual had been to browse, buy, and lunch. Alyssa missed the picking and choosing, the trying on, and most of all, Mother's peremptory tone with clerks, all in the name of getting Alyssa exactly the right piece to go with her jacket or dress or shoes. Alyssa exhaled, tightened her grip on her purse in her right hand, and plowed through the revolving doors. On the other side of the moving glass, she stood suspended, blinded by the store's artificial light, brighter than outside. This wasn't her imagination. She was really here. Alyssa took a deep breath and ordered herself to browse. But her chest contracted. She couldn't catch her breath. The animated voices, buying, selling, laughing, rebounded off the glossy surfaces. Their surreal echo, a noxious reminder, mother's not here. You know, there's a... uh, Yeah, that's the panic attack that that she's having and keeps having over her mother's... Death, there's a there's a later. little more discussion about anxiety as an aspect of grief uh, lately because um, mm-hmm. quite a fine author Claire Bidwell Smith has written a book about it and uh, I I think that's a really important addition because you know I've had people after a loss not be able to drive their cars, you know, uh, not be able to throw things away. That is not an uncommon thing. But I wondered um, in in the way that you think of her, was Alyssa already uh, vulnerable to that kind of anxiety or was it really all grief? No, I think she was vulnerable. I think she was always um, a, a very, you know, nervous, person who, um, you know, had a hard time dealing with life in all kinds of ways. And I do think this just heightened a tendency in her. And, um, and that's, you know, what you see. And, you know, it's not too big a spoiler because it comes out in the first chapter with her, but she, <laughs> she's a hoarder. And, and that's gotten worse since her mother's death. Um, you know, she has yeah, she has some issues that have only been exacerbated by loss. And I think that is part of the complication with relationships, too, because if one person is someone who wants to, you know, tidy up and and another person is someone who wants to hoard, they're going to conflict <laughs> automatically, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. How do you make decisions then about what is actually going to happen? Uh, and it seems yeah. to me in the book, it was it was quite an unconscious way that things happened, which also increases the problem, doesn't it? When it's not. Yes, yes. The older sister is, is quite the neat neck and wants to, you know, she thinks she's helping. But, you know, <laughs> yes, Alyssa well, is, many people do is, when they try to when they yeah. try to clean up, 
for the person, but mm-hmm. usually that backfires mm-hmm. <laughs> just a psychological <laughs> reality, you know. Uh, yeah, so true. Often backfires. So um, I also just wanted to maybe highlight this whole remarriage phenomenon, um, mm-hmm. which which is a part of your book. Uh, I was remembering, it, it's past now because I've been married to my second wife for 21 years. <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. I had to think of the the date in my head. <laughs> but, uh, at the first, people had a lot of trouble with accepting another person into my life. People who had known yeah. me and there was a kind of protectiveness, um, but also a kind of, um, it, it pressed other people's grief buttons because mm. uh, they, they imagined, I think, that I had moved on, which is never the way I think about it. I think of it as moving forward, <laughs> you know, um, yes. continuing to have a <laughs> yeah. life within yeah. it all. But... Um, I was I was imagining when my dad died, my mother n- never found someone she wanted to get involved with again, and uh, I did imagine at the time what it would be like uh, to, you know, obviously I would want to accept that person, and I also imagined it would be a bit complicated. What have you got to say about that? I mean, obviously, well, things were I mean, very wrong in the in in the book and in your experience. But um, in general, yeah. what was your attitude at the time? Well, I, I think in the book, you know, obviously this doesn't go well with the second wife. But at first, in the beginning, um, I, I, the oldest daughter is very, you know, she's she's happy for her father. She wants him to have someone. And um, I think Alyssa is not so keen on this, but again, she was, you know, even closer, even hit hit harder by the by her mother's death than mm-hmm. the oldest was. Um, so I think there was a sense that you know, well, all right, he needs someone, and that's okay. And then it, you know, when it goes bad, it goes really bad. Um, but I think there was an openness in the beginning, and I think that's true even for the, the, the middle son. They, nobody was thinking this was going to blow up in their faces. Right. They just wanted their right. dad to be taken care of, you know? They, wanted, uh, yes. they didn't want him to be lone, lonely. Well, also, uh, and it's time for a break, but I want to come back to this. I, I had this sense that um, they couldn't be quite sure whether their hesitations were about her or just the the fact of anyone, uh, which I could imagine being a complication, and and if you're you know generous and loving, you're gonna err on the side of thinking, oh, that's just my stuff, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and kind of ignore that that intuition that maybe things are not all great. So uh, it got me thinking a lot about that, um, how complicated that is uh, when people very. with children <laughs> remarry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very so, complicated. So let's come back to that when we're, when we're done with okay. our break and listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice America. And to find Rosalie Blueston, you can go to 
Rosalie Bluston, which is R-O-S-E-L-E-E-B-L-O-O-S-T-O-N.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Perspectives with Dr. Badisha Patel is a program that explores emotional management for a healthier lifestyle. On each program, we discuss ideas that support emotional well-being, such as mental illness, relationships, parenting, and family connections, and much more. If you are facing challenges in your life, you can grow and learn by exploring new techniques in dealing with stress, anxiety, and relationships. Perspectives with Dr. Vadisha Patel airs live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Rosalie Bluston about her novel, Trial by Family, a legal, a legal drama. And, um, you know, we before the break, we were just kind of, um, well, why don't you pick it up from where we were? Um, I, think, I think we're delving into how different personalities touch each other off, um, you know, how how we make each other's grief sometimes harder, um, hoarding, <laughs> all those all those interesting interweaving threads of your book. Say, or even parents and children, um, they just become exacerbated in any kind of uh, crisis. I mean, this um, this story it's really about greed and need and love and money, and it's kind of part family saga, part legal drama. And, you know, the patriarch, he's, he's older. He's a very bright man. He's a uh, retired attorney. 
But when he transfers uh, this huge sum of money to his second wife, Faye, um, it completely upends the entire estate plan, and the siblings have to find out what he intended, and then, of course, all hell breaks loose. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, even though, and they come together, two of them have been essentially estranged, so uh, the oldest has to come down to her sister's house. Uh, Lorraine has to come and see Alyssa, who she hasn't seen basically since her mother's funeral. So um, they have to come together and deal with what's going on. That's that's a, a something that stands out, which is that they actually share a viewpoint on why they're going to fight. They're not fighting for different reasons. There, it seemed to me they were all fighting to honor their father. Yes, that's a very important theme here. Um, and I think that's the way in which, you know, early grief is one thing, but as time goes on, the person who's gone, you do in one way or another, and here they have to do this very publicly, you want to honor those you've lost. And certainly never more than a, a parent who you revere and love and who in some way in this situation has been betrayed on some level and you need to set it right um, as a child of that parent and that is uh, you're right that is that is how they unify that they agree that you know this will not stand um, you know that they're that it's worth fighting to you know make sure that their father's wishes were honored and that his memory is honored in the right way. And perhaps their mothers also. I think so. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was yeah. she was kind of a a, a big hidden presence, I felt. <laughs> you know, yes. she's very present yes. to me even though not talked about that often. Yes. I mean, this book is told from nine different points of view. So you get that's every, challenging. Every sibling, every and you keep you know cycling through the the plot keeps moving forward and we move into the courtroom and all of that, but we never get the point of view of the mother, although she's threaded throughout because everyone is still thinking about her in her family, and she and we see in flashbacks little snippets of her um, and her impact, um, especially on the girls, especially on her daughters. And um, I really wanted that to be be there. And I'm glad you picked that up because that was an intention as a writer for me. To, well, to it, also, it, it also um, triggered thoughts I have about the way that my view of my mom has changed since she died in many, mm-hmm. many ways. Um, but it keeps evolving uh, how I look at her and what she did in her life and what she didn't do and, you know, just the whole thing. And there was a sense of that I, I felt in the book that um, the, the way they all looked at her w- was evolving, was changing a bit over time. You know, things she was involved in they didn't know she was or this and that, but still a very strong presence. Yeah, ab- absolutely. She's, um, and, and again, I think that's part of the maturing of these, you know, I, I, sometimes I think of the siblings in this book as aging adolescents, even though I say they're in their <laughs> 40s. But I think they're uh-huh. maturing. It, part of it is learning to see both parents whole and to, you know, accept them as real people 
and even though some of what they real some of what they learn might even be painful it's still part of their own growth to accept it and to move forward um and i do think that is part of you know how we all hope to mature to see our parents Absolutely. As, as real people and in cross in in contrast i would say that the other family the second mm-hmm. wife's family notably does not mature <laughs> yeah <laughs> wouldn't you say interesting. so interesting yes yes um yes maybe you could read the section of the book uh in when they've taken um Al- alvin to san juan and his second wife is uh in the bathroom Well, she's in a, yeah, it's not too much of a spoiler to say that she is in a, the bathroom of a San Juan hospital. And here she is. Faye entered with trepidation. The bathroom was spare and dirty with rough paper or none at all in the stalls. She checked her face in the smudged, distorted mirror over a rust-encrusted sink. The lipstick she'd applied earlier had faded into an orange stain, spreading into the fine lines which encircled her mouth. Her eyes were ringed with coal. She looked like a clown after the crowd had gone home. Only her hair, a perfect platinum shell, had kept its integrity. Faye splashed her face with water and patted herself dry with a sandpaper towel. Next to her, a woman, brown-skinned, heavy-set, typical of island ladies past 50, stood over the adjacent sink, sobbing into a wad of toilet tissue. Faye knew no Spanish, though this was not her first trip. Her grandchildren were fluent, but she was too old to learn. Even had she been able to speak to the woman, she would not have. Grief was private, too private for a stranger to address. Faye felt the weight of almost 50 years of marriages, deaths, and spousal abandonment. Layers of mourning had settled in her, changing her fundamentally. She was not the buoyant, trusting young woman who had married Simon Tabor and had a child with him. Nor was she the middle-aged career woman who had joined with Barney Cohen for a life of dinner parties, professional conference weekends, and great sex. She was not even the elderly woman who had eased a kind gentleman lawyer past his own recent grief and into a companionable twilight. The woman looked over at her. Faye looked away. She was done with grief. So you see there. (laughs) The hardened shell there. Yes, (laughs) she was done with grief, and yet it shows in everything she does. Yeah. In some way or well, another, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, she's, you know, she's intent, you know, she was intent that this third marriage with this companionable gentleman, who is Alvin Siegel, the sibling's child, uh, father, she's intent that that is going to reap more than her previous two marriages. And that's her focus <laughs> throughout the reap, action Reap here. more financially, you mean? Reap, oh, reap yes. Oh, in yes. every way. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think she was having a good time with him. I think she had a lot of fun with him. And then when things didn't, you know, when his health took a turn and she was going to make sure that she wasn't left out in the cold because the other two things didn't go so well. So, <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. <laughs> so she's the antagonist. The Not antagonist. The siblings are really the protagonist. She's the antagonist. But it, it, it also just brings up an interesting thing that if when you marry someone at whatever age and you plan to stay with them for the rest of your life, you actually are signing up for illness. Someone's going to die unless you both mm-hmm. die in an accident. You're signing up for grief or loss. But no one right. thinks about it. <laughs> I, I, well, I, right. I mean, I think she thinks about it because she's twice, she's lost two. Yes. And because she's older. She, both she and Alvin are both in their 80s. They're both, this is not a, you know, an older man marrying a young woman. Right. She's been through a lot. And so I think she's fully aware that this of what this can be. But you're right that most of us would not be. We were, we're thinking about the life we want. We're not thinking about the end of it. Um, we're thinking well, about the relationship. Also, I mean, she's aware they're both old. But as soon as there's any kind of health issue, uh, she's kind of out of it. She she. That's how right. she. She hit me anyway, which is, uh, of course, there was going to be a health issue is what I was thinking. (laughs) Right. No, right. No, right. She was. Yeah. Yeah. There was a sense of, yeah, cut and run here, you know. Cut and run. Yes. And and not not unusually, uh, I Mm -hmm. find that we just um, put that in another bracket. Um, I, I. I knew some people who'd been married a long, long time, and one of them started declining, and the other one said, I didn't sign up for this. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, actually, you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, yeah. So uh, yeah. it's just an interesting thing to contemplate the ways in which um, we don't prepare ourselves for that part of living until, yeah. until it's kind of pushed on us or, uh, right. you know happens without our permission usually so right absolutely did you have any and this is just kind of a a novelist question i guess uh Mm -hmm. did did you have any sympathy for her did you feel oh absolutely absolutely i mean even that passage that i just read the reason that's there is I, I, I mean, I want people to understand that she's been through it. She's been through a lot. And mm-hmm. when you write from multiple points of view and you're writing from some people that aren't all that pleasant, you have to, you still have to empathize with them. Um, I have an actress's background. And so when I took and the, the most fun characters to play were always those of the, you know, the, the kind of dicier people, the, the nasty ones, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and be, because because it's kind of you you because you still have to get inside them, and it's interesting to because no one really thinks she's not thinking oh I'm a I'm the bad guy she's thinking I deserve something now I've earned mm-hmm. it, and that's a little different than going I'm you know, I'm I'm evil I'm going after all this right. money and you know so yeah. so I think no so absolutely I empathized with everyone because I couldn't portray them clearly if I didn't do that. Otherwise they would be just pure caricature and I didn't want that. So it's interesting because I was just at a book, uh, an author's conference 
and uh, they put me on a panel, uh, the five things that, that should never be in a novel. <laughs> so I had to really think about it. And one of yeah. them was <laughs> one of them that was characters that are all bad. Mm. Right. Uh, <laughs> you right. know, people are um, complicated. People are complicated. And people who, you know, people who do bad things don't necessarily think they're bad. They have indeed. reasons. Right. And yeah. And, and a so sense of injustice often. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. And that's one of the themes in this book, justice and injustice. For <laughs> and sure. A, different people think different things are unjust in the book. But um, I think the need for the, the, the children standing up for their father and their mother in a court of law, that's their way of saying we want justice for their parents as much as they want their inheritance. And I think Faye, for her part, she feels unjustly denied. And I think that's, um, that is a definitely a theme here in Trial by Family. The, the sense of the, the craving for justice and the yes, difficulty and the different, the different ways people, people view that. Mm-hmm. Um, and fight for you know, it. Yeah. You, you, you've explained a question I had a little bit in that um, some of the book is based on something you actually experienced, but, but the amount of um, legal machination that you were able to capture, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I was um, wondering where you got it in a way, cause uh, you're not an attorney, you know, and I'm, I'm imagining yeah. Some of it you must have gotten from your own experience, um, but since it's fiction, probably not entirely. Uh, right. And that the the courtroom drama within the family drama was very uh, captivating. I've been deposed a few times, and it's the most nerve wracking thing. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's such a different kind of environment. And you captured that, I thought, uh, very well. It, it brought oh, that you. feeling back of, of being on trial when you're not on mm-hmm. trial. You know, you're just, right. <laughs> you're just being asked questions. Right. But it's such a counterintuitive right. way to operate, especially for someone like me who's, who's trained to look for underlying um, motivations uh, mm-hmm. you know, the bigger story, the emotional story. And I found it very hard to cut all that out. Yeah. Yeah. No, some of it, I mean, yes, it's based on some, some things that, uh, that I went through, but I also, I know attorneys and I could consult <laughs> and show them a draft. You picked brains things. a little bit. huh? <laughs> I picked brains. I showed early drafts. I said, is this plausible? Does this make sense? Does this track? And, you know, that's how I made sure that the depositions in the courtroom and the courtroom drama itself were um, real enough. And, um, you know, that some attorney wouldn't read this and go, well, that's ridiculous. So, you know, so I, so I did my, so I did a bit of, a, a bit of research that way. So. Gotcha. Let's, let's go to our second break now. 
listeners, of course, you can find us both during the break or anytime after. My website is weatheringgrief.com. That's got two Gs and everything is also linked to the Good Grief Host page. And to find Rosalie Bluston, you can go to rosaliebluston.com back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Rosalie Bluston talking about her novel Trial by Family. And um, something I am curious about now that I know that not this exact thing, but something similar happened in your own family, in your own life. Uh, I I was thinking about how when people have to shut their grief down uh, in the way that on some level, this family had to, to be in court and to be using their linear brain to figure out how to, exp- you know, how to talk in the court and 
uh, it's that's such a hard thing anyway. How do you then open up to, um, you know, get back to grief in a in a more? Uh, I mean, there's nothing normal about grief. It's very individual. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine opening those places up could be a little difficult after an experience like that. Well, you know, I I mean, as I said, I think it's it, because it was it was delayed both, you know, certainly for the people in this book and for myself and my my family. Um, I, I think what happens is, you know, you you decompress from the crisis, which in this case is a courtroom drama, a jury trial, and you decompress over time and then you start to pick up pieces of memories, things that are unrelated um, about the about the person that you've lost um, that might have come back to you much more quickly and you might have been able to cry over and to think about had this not happened. But it's sort of like you, you backtrack to, okay, all the way back before any of the crisis ever happened. And you start to remember childhood moments and you start to remember things about your parent that, you know, that you love to do together and you, you know, and you pick up those pieces. But I think, you know, it's kind of like when a crisis happens, it stops everything and it Mm. blocks everything out. um, And except for what you absolutely have to do. And then it ends. There's some decompression and then memories and feelings start to come back through and, you know, it's, and, and actually that can be a tremendous, for me, it was a relief to be able to feel those things, to be able to really cry over my dad. Um, and in, in, in a way that I couldn't when things were going bad with his second wife, but it took, but it was very much delayed, very different from my experience with losing my mother and and completely different from losing my husband. Mm-hmm. And yet there are these moments that peek through in the book anyway, and you can tell me if that is true uh, for you in your own experience of deep, of deep feeling. Um, for instance, this last passage I'd like you to read of the brother reading the eulogy. Um, it was, it was an emotional memorial, if you will, in the book. Yes. It, it didn't feel protracted or sort of tight. Uh, it felt like mm-hmm. people were really there grieving. So there, there are those moments, um, even, even in the face of something that takes you away from it or requires you to button it up. Yes? Yes. This, this is a graveside service. And it's not a spoiler to say that there would be no inheritance battle in a courtroom unless Alvin had died. So this is Ken, his, his son. Ken stood and faced the assembled mourners. He had been up all night writing and rewriting his eulogy. Since the rabbi, Faye's rabbi, didn't know his father except from the wedding, it was up to Ken to convey his essence. My father, Alvin Siegel, he began, unable to control his quivering voice, came to this country from Poland, an immigrant with a worthless law degree. 
He knew no one, not even the ancient uncles who paid his passage. He started over, sold shoes, went back to school, became a lawyer again, this time an American lawyer. While in school, he met the love of his life, our mother, the beautiful Estelle. Alyssa sobbed. He fathered three grateful children. Ken took a deep breath. After he lost his life partner, he was thankful for the companionship of Faye Cohen. Faye sniffed into her handkerchief. Thank God one of her biddies boomed. A shudder ran through the group. Heads turned, feet shifted. Ken was not surprised. Everyone knew about the rift. They all assumed or feared that Ken wouldn't mention his stepmother. Her friend's outburst shouldn't have happened. Faye's rude gaggle shaming him graveside. Disgraceful. He hated having to speak her name, having to give her any credit. He had struggled with this tricky point, but decided to rise above her level, to give her a minimal, gentlemanly acknowledgement. It's what his father would have wanted, in spite of her wickedness, in spite of her betrayal. Ken decided that it couldn't be avoided. Alvin Siegel's fortitude, his discipline, his loving kindness, his courtly old world, world grace, his fine intellect brought him all he could have ever wanted. He was the very definition of a civilized human being. You triumph, Dad. We will always love you. We will always miss you. So That, that, <laughs> that um, to me, really captures why it's so important to them, to the children, to have this come out as right as possible. Uh, yes. <laughs> who they perceive yes. him to be. Um, yes. Even though every quality has its downside, he didn't stand up for himself especially well, except in the courtroom. Right. Uh, right. And that's part of the problem, but still that can have a sort of gracious... Uh, quality to it someone who yeah. doesn't doesn't you know foment a lot of of conflict yeah no no i mean the father was a, a you know a, yes civilized man passive in the face of strong women or women's you know and so that was fine with their mother and it was not so fine with Faye, who had other motives um so the children have to stand up for him and and for all of it in a way that only they can do um, ultimately. And yeah, that was, and that was very emotional to read. I must say, because my, Mm. you know, there's a lot of my own dad in, in Alvin Siegel and that's, you know, I'm happy to, that's happy. That's why you could, (laughs) why you could fill him out so well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. you know that person. Yeah, it was my way of honoring him, you know, actually, to, to write him. And maybe that, that's a good, good thing to talk about before we end today is just, do you feel that writing the novel uh, in some way helped you process your own experience, even though it was fiction? Because many people, of yeah. course, do write, uh, yeah. as you had when your husband died, to, to process um, do you think this particular book helped you in that way? Definitely, definitely. It was it was it was actually my brother who 
told me, um, you know, you got to, you have to write this story in some fashion. And I said, well, it would have to be fiction and I would have to play with it. And, but I knew right away I would write it as fiction. Whereas I knew right away with my husband's, uh, loss, I was going to have to write a memoir. It's some, it's funny. The genre just became very clear to me, but in both cases, both books helped, did absolutely help me process, um, those two different kinds of grief. And, and frankly, earn my own adulthood on some level, you know, writing about it um, in this way. Because you do have to stand back and have perspective um, and be willing to go in depth and look at things you may not have wanted to look at when you're writing, um, as opposed to just thinking about it or talking about it. And um, so I, I, I know for sure that this was a good thing for me to do. It was also fun, <laughs> oddly enough. I had more, I had more fun writing. <laughs> it sounds like that surprised you, Rosalie. It sounds like that surprised yeah. you. It did. Tell me I what mean, was... Because it wasn't... It's, it, it's not a fun story in the sense of it's fun to read, but it's not a... It's, it's, it's a horrendous thing that happens to this family. And I... Um, but I enjoyed writing from the different points of view, and I, I really had a good time with it. And I think that was part of the healing, too, for me, personally, you know. So I'm hoping that shows in the Definitely. energy and the prose. Definitely. There's, a, there, uh, in, there's something about um, also using an experience to create something, whatever the thing is that you create. Because, uh, of course, I've talked to people who've created a ton of different stuff, <laughs> you know, out of mm-hmm, their own mm-hmm. losses. But there's a similar right. sense that it's it's redeeming, you know, and um, joyful in a sense to to see that you've uh, something has something concrete has come out of what has happened. Too. Yes, and something people can identify with and that, you know, you can, I mean, yeah, you lived through it, your characters lived through whatever it is that you're writing. There, there's also a kind of closure. It exists now as a book separate from my life. It's something that goes out into the world. Yeah, there's something really positive about that and creativity. I mean, what do we have as material? We have our lives. We have you know, our experiences, and we get to transform them if we have an artist's path, which uh, I'm happy to be on. (laughs) So if there were a sequel, (laughs) (laughs) could you Uh imagine, you can, could you imagine the sisters finding their way through that one? Um, I could, I, I definitely don't want to give away where this ends up, but, um, yeah, I think it's possible that there's something more to be said about sisters. And, you know, that's that's been in the back of my mind for years uh, about, you know, doing something more, more focused on um, siblings more directly because this deals with a lot of stuff. But, you know, yeah. so that may be I, th- I think it's, it's yeah, I think it's a it's an under um, attended, you know, in my field, in, in therapy, people always talk about parents, but I think siblings mm-hmm. need a little more room in the picture. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for being with me today. I've really enjoyed talking with you again. Oh, love talking to, with you again, Cheryl. <laughs> Thank you. And, and listeners, go to rosaleebluston.com to find 
uh, Rosalie and her book and everything else, the other book, which is quite wonderful too. Next week, I'll have Elena Schwalski. We'll be talking about her memoir, Waking in Havana, a memoir of AIDS and healing in Cuba. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.